and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Christmas can be both joyous and overwhelming. Wherever we found you, we're glad you chose to make this Advent sermon part of your holiday season. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'm going to invite out Rebecca Clark now. She's going to read our passage of scripture for this morning. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Kings 25, 27 through 30. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's read our prayer of illumination together. Father, when your voice thunders, it breaks the cedars, flashes forth like fire and shakes the wilderness. This morning, by that same voice, would you break our hard hearts, shaking the wilderness of our affections and burning away whatever is not of you. Give birth to new life in us, fresh faith, fresh repentance, fresh obedience, and fresh love. Amen. Would you join me as I pray for myself and for you as we enter into the Word of God this morning. Jesus, thank you for your Word. Lord, thank you for the Advent season where we get to reflect on your humility and your incarnation in coming to save us. Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God with us. And so, Lord, as we uh, study your genealogy written in Matthew 1 this morning, uh, Lord, I pray that you would give me uh, the words to speak clearly about the truth that we see in these passages. I pray, Lord, that you would open all of our hearts, uh, even as we just prayed, Lord, for uh, fresh eyes to see your word. And, Lord, would you maybe even at times stir fresh repentance in us as well. Uh, Lord, we're so grateful. Uh, We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a series uh, on Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. And believe it or not, it's actually more exciting than it sounds. And the reason for that is is Matthew wrote that genealogy uh, in hopes to draw in a Jewish audience uh, because the first thing he needed to do when he was going to write one of the gospels, the good news about Jesus Christ, is he needed to be in in some ways a herald. He needed to stand there with the papers to show the pedigree of who Jesus Christ was. He opens it up. This is the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And for that audience, it really would have drawn them in more than maybe it draws us on our Bible reading plan. Uh, And so we have been in a three-week series kind of reflecting on that genealogy. Uh, Hopefully, January 1 of this year, we will all open up to Matthew and with great confidence read through the genealogy. Can't wait uh, for that. Uh, But again, as Matthew lays this out, right, he he has kind of two goals here. One is a chronological goal. 
just like I said, one is to show, so to speak, the paperwork of who Jesus Christ is. The other is more even of a Christological goal. Christology is just the study of the person and the work of Jesus. And Jeff, I hope you have not missed the power of the last two sermons, the, the Christology of the fact that, that Jesus is the seed that was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that would bless the world. He's the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. And Jesus is the everlasting king. He is the, the fulfillment of the promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that his, his inhabitant, his people will sit on the throne forever and ever. Jesus is the fulfillment of those two things. And you, you see it as we kind of sat in Matthew chapter 1. There is a chronological and there's a Christological thing. The Christology is what causes our hearts to worship. The Christology is what stirs our affections and, and changes sometimes even our actions. It leads us to repentance and it draws us in to further knowing who Jesus is. And this morning, I, I want to reflect on even kind of a, a, a third idea here. Matthew is writing a book. And this is the opening part of this book. And his book ends in chapter 28 with the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And it ends with, behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. And I love the way Dan Doriani in his commentary on Matthew uh, speaks about this. He says, since Matthew seeks to equip the church to disciple the nations, he must establish the identity of Jesus, whom the nations must follow. So again, since Matthew seeks to equip the church to disciple the nations, he must establish the identity of Jesus, whom the nations must follow. And I think when we scan over the entirety of this section of chapter 1, the, the, the 14 generations from Abraham to David, the 14 generations from David uh, to the exile, and then the 14 generations uh, after they returned to Jerusalem uh, until the Christ. I think even in that body of people, there are some things that we can take away that hopefully will minister to our hearts this morning. I have to say, as I was uh, reading a little bit of Dan Doriani's commentary, I, I really appreciated how he marked out these three distinctions that we find within the genealogy. And so these, uh, these three groups, I'm calling them unlikely groups that we see here, uh, that comes from Dan Doriani's commentary. Uh, it's called the Expository Commentary on Matthew uh, by Crossway. just recently came out. Uh, really appreciated the things that he had to say here. And I called them unlikely groups. Uh, I'll be honest, I almost named it uh, the embarrassing lineage of Jesus. Uh, although not all these groups are embarrassing, as you'll see here, but the last one is, is definitely a little embarrassing. But I think embarrassing doesn't capture what really hits our hearts when we come to it. I, I think it's more so it's, it's unlikely. I don't know about you, but if I was planning on this great Messiah, this king, my son who would go and save the world, I'm going to tee up his lineage and make it a little bit more polished, so to speak. But you'll see here uh, that the Lord does some really powerful, cool things. This first unlikely group uh, is really unlikely because of the time period in which Matthew is writing. 
Uh, and if you studied at all any of the first century history and even well before that, uh, women, women held a, a, a smaller uh, degree of influence in the culture. Uh, oftentimes, honestly, it was a awful degree of influence. It was a sad uh, and wrong degree of influence. And, and here in this first unlikely group, Matthew names Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and he names Bathsheba, but he says it's the wife of Uriah. Right off the bat, Matthew is getting at something here that is extremely powerful for what this kingdom would be in the future. This kingdom, uh, it is not that, that at times, um, it is not that Matthew is saying here that, that genders are the same in role and function. What he is pointing to is the value within the kingdom. Women, this is not going to be a shocker to any of you, hopefully, but the power of this moment of opening up the scriptures after 400 years of silence and immediately they see women in the genealogy, Matthew is saying women are much as much inheritors of the kingdom of God, as much heirs to the throne of Christ through his adoption, as much influencers and people of faith uh, within the genealogy. And he points to uh, these specific women and it is extremely powerful. God through Matthew wants us to know that great women of faith who are in the line of Jesus. And that's important that we would mark that. Number two, the second unlikely group is Gentiles. Gentiles are just people outside of the Israelite nationality. And what's funny is that the Gentiles are almost entirely, pretty much entirely seen through these women. In Genesis 38, we see that Judah... Uh, Jacob's son, who the tribe of Judah is eventually named after, he goes uh, to the Canaanite lands to find a Canaanite wife uh, for his son. And it is there that he finds Tamar. Rahab is living in Jericho when Joshua shows up with the people of Israel. And you might remember that she was the prostitute in, Jer in Jericho who hides the spies from the soldiers and makes a deal with the spies and says, hey, look, if you uh, will, if I will protect you if you will rescue me and my family. And she is rescued. And then she shows up in the lineage of the Son of God. Ruth uh, gets a whole book set aside for her. She is a Moabite woman. And she marries into the family, a Jewish family, an Israelite family. Uh, once they leave the land of Bethlehem, uh, they go into Moab. Uh, she marries her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, uh, and her husband all die. And so Naomi, her mother-in-law, take uh, her and her sister-in-law uh, back. Her sister-in-law doesn't go the entire way. Uh, Ruth then joins, and they return to Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah. And then the last one is, is Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married to Uriah. We know that Uriah was a Hittite. Uh, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. And so we don't know for sure if Bathsheba was an Israelite or a Hittite, but it seems likely uh, that he would have married within his nationality. And so there's a chance that Bathsheba was also a Gentile. God is painting an early picture of the coming kingdom. And later in Acts, we will send his spirit and through persecution, the spirit will push the people of God out of Jerusalem into the surrounding towns 
uh, into the Gentile towns. And he will raise up people, primarily Paul, uh, to go and to share the good news. And even early on in this plan, in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself, we see Gentiles. And for most, if not all of us in this room, uh, this is incredibly good news. Later on, Paul would say that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't mean that everything that marks us as unique is dropped at Jesus. It means that our value, our inheritance, our glory that we receive in Christ is the same. And he breaks down those walls through this first two groups. But I want to spend the majority of today on this third unlikely group. And while um, this third group, which I am calling heinous sinners, hopefully you feel encouraged by that. And just so you know, I looked up heinous and hideous in the dictionary. I went with heinous because uh, it seems to uh, capture it more. But I, what I want to do, you, you can capture this um, all the way from Abraham through this point. Uh, but I, I want to highlight from David to the exile this morning. And I want us to sit in this and I want us to sit in the good news of what this means for us this morning. And so I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read um, verses 6 uh, through that part. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. I want to remind us that what we see in this section of the genealogy is that Jesus falls in the lineage of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. So Israel first as a united kingdom, Judah then when they, when they divide, Jesus falls in that lineage. Every single name that I just read on that list was a king. And so again, there's a, there's a chronological weight to this good news that Matthew's bringing. He is in the line of kings. And so I wanna, again, I wanna just fly over this section of history real quick and then again, hopefully we'll have some reflections on what this means for us. So if you remember, Israel calls out at the time, at the end of the judges to Samuel, the prophet, the last judge at that time, and they demand a king. And Samuel goes to God and there's this whole interaction and God says, I'm gonna give my people the king that they are demanding. And so Saul is anointed as the first king of Israel. Saul reigns for 40 years and in that time, uh, he is not a good king. He does not obey the voice of the Lord primarily through Samuel. And so, so God says, I'm gonna cut off the lineage of Saul and I'm gonna send you Samuel to go anoint the next king, David. And David is the king, as, as Jeff beautifully set up yesterday, uh, last week, David is the king that the whole uh, entirety of Israel looks to as the example of the great and good king. He reigns for 40 years. 
And then he has a son uh, by Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. He has a son named Solomon. Solomon reigns for 40 years. And when we get to the end of Solomon's reigns, there's kind of two candidates uh, coming to the forefront. There's Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the rightful heir to the throne. And there's Jeroboam. Jeroboam was Solomon's captain of his army, the captain of his guard. And so there's this whole neat interaction. I really encourage you in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles to read uh, those sections again, because there's this really powerful moments in that time. Jeroboam does not want to divide. 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel want to go with Jeroboam. They want him to be their king. They don't like what they see in Rehoboam. And there's this whole interaction where one of the prophets of God comes to Jeroboam, tears his pieces of garment into 12 pieces, hands him 10, and says, it is the will of the Lord that the kingdom would be divided. You will have 10. Rehoboam will have two. And then he says something really powerful. He says, Jeroboam, if you will lead the people after me, and if you will lead them and follow them after my will, I will make your name as great as the name of King David. Now, I would bet that most of you coming in here, if I asked you who King David was, you would have a basic understanding of who David was. But majority of us probably have not heard, at least often, the name Jeroboam. So Jeroboam takes Israel. Israel's capital is Samaria. Israel, through nine or ten kings, does not have a single godly king. Rehoboam comes and plants the kingdom of Judah. Judah's capital is Jerusalem. Israel's capital is Samaria, which starts to stir and makes us realize why in the New Testament, people didn't like the Samaritans. So Rehoboam begins to lead Judah. And very similarly, there's hints. Rehoboam, if you'll just lead the people of God, then your name also will be great. And this is where I return to my notes because we're about to hit some names. Rehoboam builds altars to false gods. He takes the temple and he builds altars on top of the altars of God. The palace and the temple are both plundered right in front of him and all we see is passivity. Rehoboam gives birth to his son, Abijam, and Abijam continued all that was evil. He continued to fight against Israel, the other kingdom. First Corinthians, or sorry, First Kings 15 says that the only reason that there was any blessing was because David had done what was right in the sight of the Lord. Abijam has a son, Asaph. And Asaph is the first good king. So for counting, that's one of three. Good kings who follow after Jesus in the line of David. Jehoshaphat was the son of Asa, and he walked as Asa. Now all of a sudden, our ratios are getting a little better, but it did not tear down the high places. So Jehoshaphat is a godly king, but where he sees evil, he doesn't rip that away. He just continues to build what is good, but we'll give him partial credit. So that's two of four kings. He has Jehoram. Joram. Now this is fascinating. It says that Joram married the daughter of Ahab. Now here's what's interesting about Ahab. Ahab is a king who gets a lot of written time in the Old Testament. 
Ahab is the king of Israel that Elijah is constantly battling against. And if you remember, Ahab had a wife, Jezebel. Guys, Joram's mother-in-law was Jezebel. But think for a second. What has to be going on in your heart? How little care for the things of God do you have to have to marry into a family like Ahab's? How little care for the things of God, the law of God, the temple of God, the people of God to bring that family into the picture of Judah? And yet in 2 Kings 8, 19, around Joram, we see, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah because David, since he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Joram had Ahaziah and he walked like Ahab, not David. Joram married into his family and his son followed after his father-in-law instead of the great King David. But rather than keep track, let's skip ahead just a little bit. You have King Ahaz. Ahaz specifically sacrificed his son and then he took the treasure of the house of God and he used it as a bribe for the Assyrians. He took what was the Lord's, what belonged to God and he used it as a bribe rather than trusting God to watch after the kingdom of Judah. Rather than trusting God to protect him and his family, he steals from God and he uses that as a bribe for the Assyrians. We skip ahead a little bit more and we come up on Manasseh. Manasseh was so wicked, I actually just wanna read the entire section of scripture around Manasseh. 2 Kings 21, one through nine. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hesbah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and he made an asterisk, which was just a type of idol around Baal, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and he worshiped all the hosts of heaven and he served them. That is not a, 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 a tip of the hat to him worshiping God, that's him uh, worshiping many gods. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, and he burned his son as an offering. And he used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with nucromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. 
And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. He took what was evil and he went into every holy place of the Lord and he desecrated it. His own son became a cheap sacrifice to a God who had an unquenchable thirst. And all the while, the people of God suffered. Manasseh had a son, Amon, who was just as evil as he was. But then, then he had a grandson, Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he came to the throne and immediately he brought reform. He began to rip out what was evil. He wasn't like Jehoshaphat and, and doing what's good and ignoring kind of what's evil and letting it grow and fester. He went to town and he destroyed it. And what's crazy about the picture of Judah at this time is that 18 years into the reign of Josiah, we have this crazy story where one of his servants comes from cleaning out the temple of Solomon. And he says, you don't know, you won't believe what I found. I found the law of God. It had been buried, the word of God buried in a desecrated temple. Josiah sees this and he repents and he weeps and he runs to the temple and he cries out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy on us. Everything we've read in here, we are so far from your will. And he continues to bring reform so much that God comes to Josiah and he says, I've seen your faith. I have seen your heart. And I want you to know I am going to send Judah to exile. I'm done, but I will spare you from seeing it. Josiah ignores the warnings to go off to war and he dies in one of those battles. But I want you to see, before we get into Josiah's relatives and sons and grandsons, I want you to see the relentless pursuit of God, of his people. Second Chronicles 36. Verse 15 says this, the Lord, the God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Josiah has a son, Jehoiakim, and he loses the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar. But they're still allowed to remain a kingdom, so to speak. And so Nebuchadnezzar sets up a, public, a puppet king in his place, his own son, Jeconiah. There still, at this point, seems to be a shot. Jeconiah reigns for three months and I think 10 days. And then he surrenders the people to Babylon and they are put into exile. And it's so easy for us to read that 
and to go, okay, so Jeconiah, he, he surrenders the kingdom, but can you imagine what that meant for the people? Everything lost, everything dear to them. For those who still had faith in Yahweh, they watch as the temple is destroyed, their families are stolen away to slavery. And Jeconiah, he gets to live. He gets ushered off to Babylon and they no longer have a place to call home. The king who's supposed to carry the line of the covenant promise to David has been taken away. He is now a prisoner. He is now a slave. But like everything in scripture, we get this little glimpse at the end of 2 Kings of kind of a but God. Remember, God had promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that his throne would be established forever. And in the very last paragraph of 2 Kings, we read from 2 Kings 25. This is what Rebecca read earlier. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, it's another name for Jeconiah in Matthew chapter 1, king of Judah, in the 12th month of the 27th day of the month, Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him. And he gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. I love uh, what Gary Millar, Millar said uh, in his commentary on 2 Kings. He describes this moment that we just read. He says, the aged Jehoiakim is in Babylon. That's not bad. But he is given a seat at the king's table. That is good. He is a vassal king with no real kingdom. That is bad. But at least he is the number one vassal. That is good. He's a captive, that is bad, but he does have a significant degree of independence and that is good. And yes, the Davidic king is not ruling in Jerusalem, but he is alive. The promise of 2 Samuel 7 is still intact. There's still hope of a better king to come and that is definitely good. This is not the strongest note of hope in the Old Testament, but it is real hope. It may not be much, but it is something because God's king really is the only hope. The great promise keeper has kept his promise against all filth and blasphemy and heinous sin because God's mercy and his grace are not rooted in our behavior, good or bad, his grace and his mercy are immutable as he is. And he promised to his servant David that there'd be an everlasting king on his throne. So what do you do with this knowledge? This is a weird sermon. Right, we look at a genealogy, we see, hey, great, there's women, there's Gentiles, and there's heinous sinners. 
I want to give you just two thoughts to walk away with. One, when we look and we see that there are women and there are Gentiles, would we not rejoice that Jesus is the Savior of the world? He's the Savior of the world. And when it wasn't popular to do, he's elevated women and he's telling the Israelites, hey, I've even grafted Gentiles into the lineage of the Messiah, into the lineage of the everlasting King. And sometimes on a Sabbath Sunday, sometimes we just need to pause and reflect and worship and praise God and say, I'm so grateful that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the King and that a Gentile like myself is not only justified, but is adopted into his family and receives full rights as heirs to the kingdom of God, heirs to the inheritance of his very own son. So we rejoice. And the second point that we leave with you is we looked at that, that lineage of kings. The second point I would leave this is that no sin, no sin will ever keep God from fulfilling his promises. No sin will ever keep God from fulfilling his promises. There have been days that I've, I've walked into this church and I would see maybe a story, if I reflected on a story like God's mercy towards these kings, this, his holding of his covenant promises, and it was like water to my soul. I remember one particular Sunday I come in and, and God had used friends and family to kind of just reveal my own shortcomings. He'd shown me right in my face that I, that I was coming up short as a father, coming up short as a husband, coming up short as a pastor. And I, I walk in and all I can remember is, is Jesus' story of the tax collector in the temple beating his chest and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. For many of us, we, we come in here <clears throat> and we need to hear every week mercy, grace, the good news of the gospel. And maybe you say, look, I, I, I can believe that there was good news last week. I can believe in the grace of God the week before, but not this week. I went right back and I did the same thing. What I love about the scriptures is that we can look back, we can see in 2 Samuel chapter seven, a covenant promise to his servant David, your kingdom will reign forever on an everlasting throne. And then everybody goes the evil direction. Everybody comes up short. And it's not like God looked at that and he go, man, I made a promise to David, but David's secure with me, this is crazy. We're going a different direction. Even in the disciplining of the kingdom of Judah, he says, yes, I can't do this anymore. You're gonna go into exile, but I will protect my promise to David. When you wrestle with the grace of God that we see in places like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And you can see and 
feel the muck of your sin, then you look to passages of scripture like this and you remember the promise-keeping God, the covenant-keeping God whose grace and mercy is rooted and established in his own character and his own promises and has nothing to do with your behavior this week or next. That is the good news of this King, this Messiah who would come. He is the everlasting King, the Son of God, the Son of the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And we read this and our hearts go mercy. And that is good news. You cannot out the promises of God. But for some of us in this room, maybe you have a week a little bit more like mine this last week. And I'm studying these passages and I'm sitting on the stories of these kings. And I'll be honest, I'm a little bit ticked off. Lord, you would have mercy on this? Lord, they worshiped false gods on your altar. Lord, some of them were cowards and for their own safety, they stole from you as a bribe. They offered their own children as sacrifices to false gods. Why, why would you show mercy? This is generations after your promise to David. Don't show mercy, show judgment, show justice. Go after your law and make sure that it is fulfilled. Hold the line. Why are you showing grace and mercy? And you could could feel it. You're looking at this and this is not small stuff that these people are doing and they get to be in the lineage of Jesus. Lord, your law was buried and they discovered it. Nobody will hold it against your character if you forget your promise and you show justice and judgment and you start over. And I realized, man, on any given day, that is the pendulum of my heart. That in one day, I might be rightly sitting in the presence of God, sitting under his word and allowing it to change and to sanctify me and going to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I can walk right out and I can say, why would you not judge that? It mocks your glory. I sat there and I was like, well, I, I, I can't just call this out in our hearts and not give them something to do with it. And I had nothing. There was so much darkness around us. And if you've been sitting in the grace of God for year after year, it is so hard to not cry out, Lord, just return. When he says in 1 Peter, I've not returned because some will still repent. So the best I could come up with, we did a series, the one before this on the 10 commandments, the law. And in there, those pastors did a beautiful job of showing us the heart of God's law. Sit on that, 
reflect on it, see how far from God's standards you stand. And then remember the cross and the grace and the mercy of God. Remember those moments where you fell on your face and you said, have mercy, Lord, of me, a sinner. Sure, maybe I've been trying to check the boxes and most of my life I've been able to do it. But Lord, do not let me cast judgment because that same judgment could be cast on me. And there is no sin that'll keep God from keeping his promises. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And we see his promise keeping in the lineage of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you have been so good to us. Lord, we declare that you are the everlasting king that you are the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. You are the seed that has blessed the world. And Lord, on this side, we get to see the details of that fulfilled. And so Lord, would you help us to reflect on this as we go, to celebrate, Lord, that you are the savior of the world. And to remember, Lord, when we desperately need your mercy and your grace, that, Lord, it covers all of our sin, that you are patient and long-suffering, that there's nothing that we can do to remove your promises. Would you help us to remember that? And, Lord, would that build mercy in our own hearts when maybe we are tempted to cry out in frustration at your grace and your patience towards those around us. Would you help us to that end? We love you in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.